some have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be sent before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about four thousand people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? And having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on them, he asked them, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Thus far, our scripture reading, we'll continue that on to our text uh, afterward. But meanwhile, let's sing Psalm 23. They told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Thus far, the reading of our text for this afternoon will be verses 27 through 38. Brothers and sisters, as we begin today, our, our message for today, I want to begin by commenting on how what life is like in the Christian Church of Canada. The fact of the matter is that even in the age of COVID and the restrictions, the Canadian Christian is someone who is rather privileged. In fact, even in Ontario, the Christian pastors were able to pray with the premier. It goes to show that the Christianity does still have a voice here, even if it's on the defensive. The Christian church has many advantages. We enjoy tax deductions, public holidays, usually legal protections, although not always. We have buildings to worship in, seminaries that are given freedom to teach according to God's word. Nobody harasses us when we attend church or for reading our Bibles. And generally, Canadian Christians do well in business. We have careers. We succeed in this world. Now, it seems to me that given our backdrop of privilege and, and a, a, a level of success, it seems that Jesus' words in this passage are quite jarring. Maybe even puzzling. Right? Because what does Jesus say? He says, Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. It's a striking statement, isn't it? Whoever wants to be my disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. It's a rather astonishing statement. How is it possible in today's Canada, what does it mean to deny myself? I have to confess that those words have been ringing through my head for years. What does it mean to actually live as if these words are true? That's the message we're going to talk about today. The message is going to come to you from God's Word. I preach to you today from this theme, if you would follow your suffering Lord, then you must be ready to deny yourself and pick up your cross. We'll see, A, a right but inadequate confession, and number two, deny yourself and take up your cross. And so, we're going to start with the first point. In order to answer our question, we first need to understand our passage rightly. The first thing you need to know about our passage, Mark 8, and uh, this, especially the end of Mark 8, 
It's pivotal to the Gospel of Mark. This passage is what scholars call the great hinge of the book. The first half of the book of Mark is all about Jesus' identity. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? And it leads up to the great answer to that question, which Peter will give shortly. And after this passage, the focus of the book is on the cross. Jesus' path towards the cross, and that that becomes the climax of the second half of the book. And so this, this particular passage is pivotal to the book of Mark. We'll see that in a bit, why in a bit. But first let's begin with understanding the passage. The passage begins, if you notice, with Jesus and his disciples walking along a road. It's very curious. Jesus went with his disciples on to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and along the way, he has a conversation. Jesus asks his disciples a question. He's, in, he's asking them, he's interested in their answer. Right? What's the question? Who do people say that I am? Well, it's kind of an interesting question. I mean, given all the miracles that Jesus has been doing in his fascinating teachings, this is a question that a lot of people are trying to answer. Right? Remember, the first half of the book is, who is Jesus? And so Jesus asks the question. And his disciples answer, and they say, oh, well, you know, some people think you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Makes sense. Given who Jesus is and the things he's been doing, obviously there's something special about Jesus. But they're still not... But many people still aren't 100% sure who exactly he might be. And then Jesus turns the question to his disciples. But who do you say that I am? Forget them. What about you? What's your confession? And Peter answers with this climactic, magnificent confession. You are the Christ. Christ means anointed one or Messiah. You are the one whom the Jews have been waiting for for centuries. You are the king of Israel, the one who will restore your people. Jesus uh, orders his disciples to stay quiet about this. He's not ready for the fullness of who he is to be declared in Israel quite yet. But then in verse 31, Jesus does something very unusual. Look what he does. So here we have this huge, climactic confession, and now Jesus starts teaching. And what does he teach? Well, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and by the elders, chief priests, and scribes and be killed. <laughs> now remember something. We're reading this book and we know how the story ends. But the disciples did not. The disciples don't know that that Jesus is going to die. They think the idea is outrageous. Jesus just said he was the king of Israel. Now he says that he's going to die? No. Peter, Peter thinks this is outrageous. Look what Peter does. Peter takes 
Like, remember, they're walking along the road. They're having a conversation. Jesus is probably walking a bit ahead of the disciples. And Peter hears Jesus say that he's going to die and rise again. And he's like, no, come on, no. That, no. No, that's... And Peter takes Jesus to the side of the road and he begins to rebuke him. Now remember, before meeting Jesus, Peter is a, what we call a zealot. Zealots are a Jewish rebel group that wants to overthrow the Roman government. And Peter, of course, is absolutely thrilled that Jesus is the Messiah, the King of Israel. He thinks Jesus is going to liberate Israel from the Romans and form a new empire that looked like Solomon and David's empire. When Jesus begins talking about rejection and suffering and all this, this gloomy stuff, Peter thinks, oh, this is, no. Jesus is a soldier who's losing his will to fight. Peter needs Jesus to stiffen up and pursue his destiny. But Jesus' response to Peter is swift and strong. He stops on the road, turns to face all of his disciples, and he says, Get behind me, Satan! You do not have in mind the things of God. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter and his disciples are stunned. I'd imagine a lot of us have questions as well. How can Peter in one moment confess the truth about God? Jesus is the King, the Christ. And on the next moment, be called Satan. It's a rather stunning reversal. How do we explain this? Well, just because... Peter understood that Jesus was the Christ. Didn't mean that Peter understood how Jesus would be the king. Peter did not understand that for Jesus to be the king of the world meant that Jesus also had to be the savior of the world. And to be a savior, he had to suffer and die. And again, from this moment onward, the gospel of Mark goes straight to the cross. Here, in this moment, Jesus first announces to his disciples that suffering and death are the way of the king. Crucifixion is the way that this king will become king and assert his power. You might ask the question, well, why? There's a long answer to that. It's the whole Bible answers. The basic point is that when man sinned in Genesis 3, death was the penalty that had to be paid for his sin and rebellion. God's justice demanded that. But instead of destroying rebellious mankind, God decided to pour out his wrath and justice out on Jesus as a substitute for the punishment that we deserved. Jesus would take that punishment and enable reconciliation between God and man. Jesus had to suffer and die. That was the way in which he would save humanity in order to satisfy God's justice and enable reconciliation. Now, when Jesus enabled reconciliation between God and man, 
he also defeated Satan. If God does not have a relationship with man, if God's relationship with man is separated due to sin, man is at the mercy of Satan. Satan loves to possess, use, and hate people. And if God doesn't protect people, if people are estranged from God, they are at the mercy of Satan. By enabling reconciliation, Jesus defeats Satan. Satan can no longer have his way with human beings. That's also why Satan, when Satan saw that Jesus was willing to suffer and die and enable reconciliation, well, Satan knew that that was the end for him. That's why we read about the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4. Satan tries to convince Jesus to give up his mission. Don't suffer and die. Satan says, I can give you the whole world without you having to do that. And Satan's temptation is to have tempt Jesus to abandon the road of suffering and death and go an easier road. And Peter's rebuke of Jesus is based on the same philosophy, that Jesus can become king without suffering and dying. Peter wants Jesus to become king over the world by human means, by the means of armies and power, and through the strength of men. Peter wants Jesus to use his divine power to conquer the world for the sake of Israel. To make Israel powerful. And Jesus is angered at the satanic origin of such a thought. Jesus is not king just to exercise power or to become a human ruler over the world. No, that would be defeat. Jesus has come to do something far bigger than that. To die for the sake of all humanity. To save them and reconcile them to God and bring them with him to an eternity in heaven. To recreate mankind in the image of God. And Peter, Jesus commands Peter to get behind him. Get behind. Follow me. You don't tell me what to do. You follow. If Peter gets to tell Jesus what to do, Jesus The whole mission is defeated. And so this provides the background then for our second point, which is deny yourself and take up your cross. Because what becomes clear, if Jesus is going to suffer and die, it becomes clear that his people who follow him are going to have to do the same. And Jesus uses this occasion to teach something profound that people have to get. He gathers his disciples together, we see at the we see in verse 30, uh, 34, right? Look what he says. Calling the crown to him with his disciples. Okay? Calling the crowd. You put yourself in the crowd. He's talking to you. He's not just talking to his disciples or the apostles. This isn't just for the apostles. This is for everybody. Look what he says. He's going to teach now. If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What Jesus is saying to Peter is this. In particular, these are the words of Chrysostom, third century teacher. He says, look, 
Jesus is saying, do not by any means imagine, Peter, that this, you're walking behind me, is actually your following of me. You should not expect, Peter, that because you confessed me, Son of God, that there are only crowns to expect, and to suppose that this is enough for your salvation and security. It's not enough for you to follow me around on foot. And Chrysostom hits harder. He says, look, Peter, it will be impossible for you even to be saved unless you yourself be continually prepared for death. Not only does Jesus have to suffer rejection, but so do you as a follower of Jesus. And you do that by first denying yourself. What does that mean? Well, that's to say that we are to abandon our desires and attachments to the world, this world. And be ready to give our lives over to death. It's to refuse to pay attention to my own desires and subordinate my desires to Jesus. This, by the way, is the Catechism. Lord's Day 1, right? What's my comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That I deny myself and the things that I want out of this world and submit to the things that Jesus wants. And when you deny yourself, the next step is to take up your cross. What does that mean? Well, who better to say it than Bonhoeffer, the German theologian who lived under the Nazis? He said it this way. He says, The cross means sharing the suffering of Christ to the last and the fullest. Every Christian has his own cross waiting for him, a cross destined and appointed by God. Each must endure his allotted share of suffering and rejection, but each has a different share. And each has a different share of suffering. This is a curious thing. Some God deems worthy of the highest form of suffering and gives him the grace of martyrdom while others he does not allow to be tempted above that which they are able to bear. But it is one and the same cross in every case. Every Christian will suffer, whatever shape. The most fortunate Christian is the one who's allowed to suffer martyrdom. Remarkable. Brothers and sisters, the point is that believing in Jesus Christ who died shamefully on a cross is not a belief that's popular to our world. By definition, to choose Jesus is to choose, or to or choosing Jesus, it's bad language, to become a Christian is to choose or to be part of an unpopular, offensive, strange way of living to everyone who lives outside the church. It invites opposition. 
by its very nature. Now the question comes, of course, and I think it's a good one. Okay, that all sounds good. What does it actually mean in the daily lives of people in Alora? What's my cross here in Alora? What would that look like? In order to help flush this out, I've found a story. A story about a man who was nicknamed Preacher Bob. It's a story that a friend of mine in British Columbia told me. My friend had spent many years of his life running a logging company in the coastal mountains of BC. One year he hired Bob to work on the logging crew that he had. In his first weeks on the job, it became clear that Bob wasn't like other men on the logging crew. Bob didn't join in the crew joking or look at pornography or talk trash about a woman. He didn't join the men on the bars on the weekend. The other loggers were famous for doing. Bob didn't do the other things that men did. And so the other men began to call Bob Preacher Bob. The irony, my friend said, is that Preacher Bob never preached to anyone. Bob simply went about his work and did his share, humbly and quietly. But my friend said that the reaction to Preacher Bob was visceral. At first, the crew hated him. They questioned his manhood, they pushed him around, and they did whatever nasty things they could do. But Bob never responded with revenge or anger, my friend said. Instead, over time, Bob began to bring cookies to work. He invited the men over to his house for coffee on the weekends. Bob treated everyone with kindness and worked hard. And he never compromised his, his values. The point is, brothers and sisters, Bob's cross was the mockery of the logging crew. Bob didn't go out looking for a cross. It came to him because he lived as a Christian. Because he loved Jesus. When Jesus says, pick up your cross, he's not talking about suffering in general. Suffering for having cancer or, or a disease even. He's talking about the type of suffering that comes for living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, even followers of Satan will suffer for Satan, so to speak, right? That doesn't mean suffering itself receives this noble uh, treatment. No, Jesus said. Whoever wants to... Let me read it here in the ESV. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake... And the Gospels will save it, right? So, for my sake and for the Gospel, that's the cross. This is a curious line, isn't it? Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the Gospel will save it. Brothers and sisters, there's a little more to the story about Preacher Bob. My friend said this about Bob's impact on the crew. He said, look, the results that summer were remarkable. Guys who had run him down behind his back and often to his face began first to back down. 
and eventually they became Bob Boosters. Men who had mocked him earlier in the year as the summer went on slowly began to change their attitude, and by summer's end, they still called him Preacher Bob from time to time, but by that point it wasn't a nasty term. Bob's faith changed people. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Bob was ready to lose his life for Jesus, and by standing on his convictions, he gained the true life. The life where he knew Jesus intensely, lived out the gospel, and began to be contagious. Now, when Jesus says, save your life, I think he means heaven. Whoever lives for me and suffers for me will enjoy an eternity in heaven. But there's often a way in which saving your life means saving your life here too. He who is ready to give up his entire life to Jesus will receive true life from Jesus both now and eternally. In fact, the word for loses your, his life is the same word for, used for kill and destroy. Whoever is willing to destroy their earthly life for me and the gospel will save it. It's funny, right? To be truly human is to live for Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that's the foundation of evangelism and witness. Jesus could have said, Whoever loses his life for my sake will become a contagious Christian witness. There's a story told about a missionary to Burma. His name was Adoniram Judson. A story that illustrates the concept. It goes like this. For seven heartbreaking years, Adoniram Judson was put in jail and suffered terribly for being a missionary. During this time, he was thrown to Eva prison. He was shackled cruelly there, and for the rest of his life, he carried the scars from the shackles and the torture that he experienced there. Undaunted, when Adoniram Judson was released from prison after this experience, he asked permission. He lost no time. He went to the local ruler, and he asked that ruler for permission to enter a different province to preach the gospel. The ruler, who was godless, refused the request. He said, no way. He said, look, my people are fools enough or not foolish enough to listen to what missionaries say. But my fear is that they might be impressed by your scars and then turn to your religion. Brothers and sisters, no evangelism technique or training can substitute for a Christian who is willing to lose everything for the sake of Christ. And that is a difficult, difficult truth for us, isn't it? You see, here's the problem with the North American Christian. Us wealthy North Americans, myself included, we love to have our feet in both camps. We want the best of this world and the best of heaven. Just like Peter. I'm no different. I love to fill my life with planning my vacations, my plans to 
snowboard and visit Nova Scotia. Next car I'm going to buy, the decorating of my house, binging on Netflix, who knows what else. I tend to think in my heart that suffering for Jesus, uh, that's an interruption of the good life I'm meant to have, that I deserve for being a North American. I don't like discomfort. And frankly, why would I suffer discomfort when I don't have to? It seems. But brothers and sisters, the truth is as, clear, is as clear as it is difficult. One commentator said, The one for whom the way of Jesus is more important than his own existence will secure his eternal being. But the one whose existence on this earth is is more important than Jesus will lose both Jesus and his existence. It's a little bit complicated. I'll, I'll say it this way. The point is, brothers and sisters, to love Jesus and the world equally means that at the end of your life, you'll have neither Jesus nor the world. To love Christ and the world equally is to deny Christ. The fact is that if your faith has never led to discomfort in your life, there's something out of place. Again, we don't seek suffering or martyrdom. It comes when we live for Jesus. Our faith at some point should lead to a certain level of discomfort in this world and also sometimes maybe even within our church. I'll explore this a bit. Let's think this through a little bit. Here's an article here that titled, Eight Signs Your Christianity is Too Comfortable. I'll go through these eight things, and we can all do a self-reflection process here. Take a look at yourself. Not at other people. Look at yourself. I'll read these eight things. Here's number one. Your faith is too comfortable if your faith aligns too perfectly with a certain political party. Now again, this article was written to Americans. It's a little bit different as a Canadian, but still. Or number two. There are no paradoxes, tensions, or unresolved questions in your life. Your faith is too comfortable if there are no difficult questions in your life. Why? Well, because your knowledge is the kind of knowledge that's never encountered people who are think differently. It's what I call Facebook knowledge. It's knowledge that's only reinforced by people who agree with you. It's number two. Number three. Your faith is too comfortable if your friends and your coworkers are surprised to learn that you're a church-going Christian. You've never told them because it makes you too uncomfortable. Number four. You never think about or remember the Sunday sermon on Monday. You didn't come to church to listen to the preaching. You came to church to check off a box. Right? Number five. Your faith is too comfortable when no one at your church ever annoys you. You haven't put any effort into loving your fellow brothers and sisters and getting to know them well enough that they'd start to annoy you. You ask your pastor about how many of you annoy him. 
That's what happens when you start to love people and care for them. Unfortunately, they become annoying because people are flawed. But love is uncomfortable. That's number five. Number six. Christianity is too comfortable if you never feel challenged, only affirmed. Again, the point being, you've never looked for idols in your life. And when people point out your idols, you don't want to listen. You'd rather live your life thinking you're a pretty good person. Number seven, you've never had to have a truth and love conversation with a fellow Christian. You've never walked, leaned into discomfort for the good of someone. Number eight, no one in your church could comment on any area of growth they've seen in you. Either because you haven't grown or because nobody knows you. You're too comfortable. Comfort will destroy you. And again, these things should give a little bit of shape. It's not a perfect article. It's not perfect points. You might have different ways you want to look at things. It's fine. But this is a way that I've tried to give shape to what Jesus is teaching. These things are true for you. It indicates perhaps a level of comfort with this world that is unhealthy. Your cross is still laying on the ground. You haven't picked it up. Maybe it's in the shed somewhere. You're not sure. And Jesus continues. Look what he says next. Right? Verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What's the point? For what can a man give in return for his soul? What could we possibly be doing in our lives that's more important than our soul? Can anything in this world give you eternity? Or the beauty of knowing Jesus? Why do we dabble in our Christianity when so clearly it's better than anything else? One author said, The world one can live without. But when one loses one's personhood or being, what could one give in exchange? Here's another, here's a church father who said this, the true Christian would give everything he could, even the whole world if he had it, for the sake of the gospel. The irony, of course, is that even if you had the whole world, you'd still be unhappy and you'd still die and go to hell if you didn't know Jesus. And finally, Jesus gives the most terrifying argument, something that should send shivers and sweat down your back. Look what he says next. He says, Forever, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Ouch. Man. If I am ashamed of Jesus in my life, then God will be ashamed of me when I die. 
brothers and sisters, if you've never seriously reflected on this passage, you are in big trouble. Brothers and sisters, do not delay. Do not sit on your couch after this sermon and act as if life is the same. You need to believe in Jesus Christ. I spent most of the second point with a strong warning, but the point of this, brothers and sisters, is not to depress you or oppress you or create some type of law that you need to follow. The point of all of this is to get you to the point where you're ready to get on your knees and know your Savior. To warn you of the consequences of failing to take your Savior seriously. And that the way you live your life is related to what you believe. And if your life is not producing anything, there's something wrong in here. But brothers and sisters, the great glorious hope of the gospel is that it's available for you right now. Jesus opens his arms wide to any person who would walk to him. Jesus will fill us with his spirit. And Jesus is ready to be called upon in prayer. Some of you are going to say, well, what about election? And I would say, do you know if you're elected or not? Election is in the mind of God. What's for you to do right now is believe. That's the command. Don't think about what's in the mind of God. Believe now. Do not delay. And if you do, Jesus will be there to welcome you and all good things will be on a table right in front of you like a feast of the Lord's Supper. It's there for you. There's nobody in between you and the feast but your sin. Do not look at this passage like this and feel like it's loading a a load of guilt on you. If you feel guilt, go to the person who can lift the guilt off and forgive you. That's Jesus. Brothers and sisters, again, this warning is not, a, uh, is not meant to load a burden on you and to, to, load, to, to sort of say, oh, you should do more for the church. It's not what we're asking for. It's not the point. The burden of this passage is where the burden of the whole Bible lands, and that is stop being tempted by the siren call of the world and come to Jesus now. Rest in Him alone. Don't worry about what you have to do. Just come to Him and rest in Him. And yes, resting in Him will entail suffering. Yep. Augustine even says it this way. He says, look, what what Jesus commands is not difficult since He helps us affect what He commands. But first come to Him. Brothers and sisters, do not walk away from here without going to your Savior. Eternity is in the balance. Brothers and sisters, whatever suffering you would have for experiencing Christ and knowing Christ is an honor, not a deterrent. So brothers and sisters, remember that Jesus died for you. Nobody else in this world died for you. He did. He died for you. He rose from the dead. 
He's in heaven watching over you right now and filling you with His Spirit. Nobody else did that. Nobody else is willing to do that for you. He is. He did. Go to Him. Know Him. Be filled by Him. And yes, brothers and sisters, if you have to suffer for Him, celebrate it. For it is a privilege. Amen.